The Lord is salvation, part 4, from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 to 12. So this Good Friday 2021, we continue our series called Encounters with God. It was intended to be a short series, but as my series tend to happen, they keep growing. So this is our fourth message on Isaiah, as we have moved from Isaiah's encounter at the temple in chapter 6, that glorious vision before the throne of God where his sins are atoned for by an angel who comes down with a coal and touches his lips. And now we move to the cross where the Messiah atones not for the sins of one particular individual but the sins of the world by his own blood. And the whole of the servant's song is remarkably descriptive of Calvary. This is what this passage in in the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 is known as the servant song. And when you consider the fact that it was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, there's no way to explain it except to call it divine revelation. The accuracy, the description, the events, and the effect, the, the result of his sacrifice. It is one of the, this chapter is one of the great proofs that the Bible is indeed the Word of God, if you needed any more proof. Some Jewish rabbis who are very familiar with this text identify the servant as being the whole nation of Israel. But we know that from the things that are described in here, that could not be possible. You would have to stretch quite a few of those verses beyond, beyond that. Others say that it speaks of the Messiah who has not yet come. While some other rabbis choose to skip right over the whole of the chapter 53 in their yearly readings. First of all, let's look at the silence from verses 7 to 9. And as I speak through this passage, I'll be going verse by verse. Then let's see what lesson the Lord has for us. He oppressed and afflicted, says in verse 7, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So this is the fourth stanza, or the fourth verse in this song, which is very descriptive of the events themselves. It is a striking thing that in all of the Gospel accounts of the trials of Jesus, as, as described in our first reading this morning, he never spoke up on his own behalf, on his own defence, to try and, and escape the penalty. That is why he did it in, in silence. He had no interest in defending himself. So he never protested, saying, I've done nothing wrong. You've got the wrong guy. Oh, this is so unfair. This is so unjust. He didn't say any of that. And these are the types of the remarks that somebody like Pilate, who was a governor appointed by Caesar, would have heard all the time. From everybody not guilty, they're innocent. It doesn't matter how guilty they are. Everybody would plead not guilty. 
So this is, this is something that he's, he's never faced before. He's so shocked. He was amazed that it didn't happen this time. Let's look at Jesus. Despite, as Matthew 26.53 tells us, Matthew 26.53 tells us that he had 12 legions of angels of heaven at his disposal. Depending on how you take the measurement of legions, let's say that a legion is, the standard measurement is a thousand soldiers, 12,000 angels at his disposal and uh, was it last week or the week before we described how one angel went outside the city of Jerusalem and killed 186,000 soldiers of Sennacherib's army. One, one angel. So, not just 12,000, and we could probably say that there's enough firepower there to obliterate not just our planet, not just our solar system, but the whole of the universe itself. Just to give you an idea. Now, all of that firepower at his disposal and all he had to do was make the call. And he kept silent. Don't you think that those angels would have been just chomping at the bit? Come on, let us do something. Come on, make the call, make the call. He didn't. The Lord was going to the cross without resisting, fully aware of all that would happen to him between then, the moment of his arrest, to the moment that he would breathe his last. There would be at least 12 hours of uninterrupted torture. When Peter, who was from a distance, Personally, he, he watched from a distance. He followed from a distance. He personally witnessed all that happened. And, and Peter, in recalling that event, he, he was writing in his letter, in his first letter, he was writing to the persecuted Christians in the first century who themselves were, were being unjustly treated, incarcerated. And he used this very passage as an example for how to respond when you are attacked for your faith. This is what he said in 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What was Peter doing? He was using Christ as an example, leaving you an example. So let's cut to the chase here, guys. One of the indicators many of us will find out whether our faith is real or not, or where it's really at, in any particular time in our spiritual walk, 
is how we react when others mistreat us. You know what I'm talking about. This insatiable search for justice that we see these days, right? Especially egged on with social media and the web. In this digital age, it's so hard to keep quiet, isn't it? Suddenly we have an army of of digital warriors or what do you call them? They're typing away. Sometimes, not always, sometimes, not always, as a Christian, it is wiser not to say anything. Note that I say sometimes when they attack us. But when others are unjustly attacked, in whatever context, many times we will need to speak up. We will need to speak up, especially for those who cannot speak for themselves. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. How true are, are these words, right? By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And anyone reading the Gospel accounts would work it out straight away that the trials that Jesus went through were an absolute farce. The Jewish trial before the, the, the high priest, because before the, the Roman trial they had the Jewish trial, and the Jewish trial before the high priest was held at night, which was illegal. Uh, Pilate three times admitted that he could find nothing wrong in Jesus. He said so himself. He said it publicly. And then he got his wife who came and said, please, don't do this. And despite all this, despite all this, despite the knowledge that he, Jesus, was innocent, he still sentenced him to death. His guilt is therefore all the greater because he knew what he was doing. He gave in to injustice. Even though he stood in judgment, he gave in to injustice for the sake of pragmatism and political expediency. How many times do you think that happens in our world today? Yet no one protested. No one protested the injustice of it all or stood up for him. Why not? Why not? Was it fear? Yeah, fear is a pretty big motivator. But I think something else is that perhaps they were so enraged, the mob was so enraged that Jesus wasn't the type of Messiah that they were expecting. They they were expecting a liberator something that would kick out the Romans and establish his own kingdom on earth. And and the disappointment just built up. You know how we sometimes, sometimes, all the time, we elect prime ministers and others and and where there's so much hope and then 
you know, within a month or something, oh, really? You didn't tell us about that election. And suddenly we've changed the rules. But disappointment sets in. So this mob went wild. They didn't just scream, crucify him, crucify him. They also wanted the criminal Barabbas released. And then seeing that Pilate's blood is vacillating, they upped the ante by saying his blood is on us and on our children. Now to condemn an innocent man is one thing, but then to extend the guilt, not just upon yourself, but to your descendants as well, is really something else. Why would you do that? If you knew deep inside that the guy whose blood you're screaming for is actually innocent, and then you're still willing to carry the burden of the guilt. Wow! Verse 9 says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had no violence, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Do you notice how the enemy hands that were slapping him, kicking him, punching him, (coughs) thrusting the thorns on his head and whipping him, those hands (coughs) stopped the moment that he died. After his death, no enemy hands touched his body. If they, if, they, if they got the chance, if they got the chance, they probably would have thrown his body outside the city on the rubbish dump. That's where you threw out all the rubbish carcasses and everything outside the city. They didn't get the chance. Because if one dies the death of a criminal, one does not expect the executioners to spend too much time on this lavish care for the corpse. You just dump it. Jesus died a criminal's death. No, only those who loved him, at first secretly, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they went and asked permission, they took his body and his friends made sure that he was assigned a grave with the rich in his death, just as Isaiah said. Someone put it so well. I love this. He said, He who came from a virgin womb must be laid in a virgin tomb. He who came from a virgin womb must be laid in a virgin tomb. So let's look at the success, triumph, the victory aspects of, of, of this servant song in verses 10 to 12. Yet it was, verse 10 first, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offsprings and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
Yes, Jesus was without sin in every way, but he bore the sins of others. He didn't suffer because of what he did, but because of what others had done, including you and me. We understand that. We acknowledge that. But how could it please God the Father to deliver his Son to death, but not just to death, but, to the, but through the agony of torture of crucifixion? And, and in the context of the times in which we live, it, it's, it's a little bit hard to fathom. So much so that a, a, a few years ago, a British pa- Baptist pastor, mind you, a British Baptist pastor went as far as suggesting, and he was serious, he wrote a book and he was as far as suggesting that to accept the traditional understanding of the atonement is to also accept what he called a form of cosmic child abuse. That's what he called it. The, the father delivering his son to be tortured and bold, he said, is a form of, to accept that, he says, is a cosmic child abuse. So firstly, let's consider the son's point of view. Jesus came to earth with a mission. Born, grew up, matured as an adult. He was an adult. And therefore, able to make his own decisions and take responsibility for them. It's like the Australian Army dropping SAS soldiers who know the full risk. This is what they signed up for. They drop them behind enemy lines for an important secret mission. They're obedient not just to their superiors, not just they're committed not just to their to the government, to the army, to the government, but to the whole of the Australian people. But they know what they're doing. They know the price. They know the cost. Jesus had a duty to the Father, willing, but was willing to, was a willing, he wasn't forced, he was a willing volunteer, willing to pay the ultimate price for duty, for love. Secondly, let's consider the father's side. At the end of verse 10, God's will or or pleasure is in what the son accomplishes in dying. It says, the will of of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God's pleasure is not so much in the suffering of the son but in the great success of the victory of what the son would accomplish in his dying. There is that remarkable promise in Romans, in Romans 8.32, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he's given you the mansion, I think David Cook put it this way, if he's given you the mansion, I'm pretty sure 
he'll, he'll just throw in the lawnmower with it, is what he's saying. But his love for us was so great that he was willing to deliver him up to death. We might find a way out of this disease of sin and death. So his delight is not a sadism that enjoys suffering. The pleasure of God was that his grace could bring about salvation through the death of his son. In this way, Christ is the provision and the Father is the cheerful provider. The will of the Lord prospers when his plan comes together, not by chance, but perfectly as planned. And when those who benefit from his sacrifice become his children, it is complete. His will cannot prosper in the hands of a dead man. Therefore, he says, his days will be prolonged, which is already pointing towards the, what? The resurrection. As another pastor said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And when the question is asked, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Some obviously very quickly point to the Jews. That is true. The Jewish rulers plotted and delivered him up to be, sac- to be crucified. But it's also true that the Gentiles crucified Jesus. Pilate, as the representative of the Roman Empire, put him to death. So that both Jew and Gentile are responsible for the death of Jesus. But that's not the end because, you see, your sins and mine are the reason he did all this. But still that doesn't exhaust the matter. We cannot escape the truth of this statement. It was the Lord's will. The Lord's will. The Lord's will, if you're not understanding what I'm saying, to crush him and cause him to suffer. Ultimately, it was the Father who put his son on the cross. That is the scriptural truth. Verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. It was in and through Christ that his purpose, God's purpose, will prosper. In verse 1 of chapter 53, the question is asked, who has believed our message, right? Verse 1. And on that first Good Friday, it appears that no one has believed the message, right? Yet in verse 11, blood, there is a promise of success. His sacrifice was not in vain as his blood will do what? It will justify Many. It doesn't say it will justify all. It says it will justify many. Justification has two sides. Neither can exist 
without the other. There's two sides to the coin. In the same judicial declaration of forgiveness or God declaring not guilty, God also pronounces the believing sinner. The moment you put your faith in Christ, God pronounces you righteous. And because the believer is righteous in the sight of God, righteous is what we become when we are justified because he is righteous, he declares us righteous and we become righteous and we're justified. And when one is justified, he no longer has the status in called the sight of a sinner. There's a thing called in, um, in, the, in the court system, there's something called double jeopardy. God will not condemn a justified person once he's been declared innocent. No further charges can be brought. God will not condemn a justified person. No wrath can fall on him. Romans 5.10 There is therefore no condemnation. The other verse. Romans 8. And it wasn't just duty for the son, there was also joy. In Hebrews we read, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 too. And as Jesus moved from death to resurrection, the grave, the grave turned out to be just a, a hotel for a couple of nights. A temporary residence at the most. And on the third day, he comes in the most emphatic way. This is what someone else said. On Friday, he received what we deserved, but on Sunday, he received what he deserved. And finally, we come to his reward and our reward in verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, unfortunately, the NIV, which is the version that we normally use, the NIV limits the impact of this verse. In in another version, this is a little bit closer, it says, therefore I will give him the the many as a portion. I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil. In other words, the servant receives as his own all the ones he died to save. More than that, images of the earth are his conquest, the strong over whom he reigns in majesty. Once he was in the hands of Pilate, Now Pilate and all the other rulers are in his hands. Isaiah started by declaring that the servant would be exalted in spite of his suffering. That's in chapter 52. Now he declares that the servant will be exalted because of his suffering. You notice that? As we conclude, 
Because of human sin and guilt, the death of Christ was a sacrifice. Because of God's wrath against sin, it is propitiation. Because of our moral bankruptcy before God, it is imputation of our sin to him and his righteousness to us. Because of God's alienation towards sinners, it was reconciliation. Because of our slavery in sin, it is called redemption. And because of the power of the devil over us, it was a work of destruction of Satan and his kingdom. And because we were once totally lost in our sins, we call it salvation. But this promise of salvation is only for those of us who have humbled ourselves, repented of our sins and called on his name. This promise is only for those who believe in what he did on Good Friday and believe that he rose from the dead on Sunday. And we also know that the death of people die all the time. That's, we are human. People die all the time. And we cannot simply say that any death is, will do. No. A death alone will not save us. Only Jesus' death will save us. Why? Because he conquered death. So I hope and pray that all of us who are here have truly surrendered our lives to the perfect one who died for us. If you haven't, don't delay. Don't delay. Don't keep waiting. Don't put it off. But submit your lives to Christ. Because he's giving you a chance to come to him. This is the message of Good Friday. May God bless us.